Thank you, church, and good morning to all of you. And um, you'll have to forgive me. I am fighting a cold, and I'm going to be very selfish and try to keep that to myself, if that's okay with you. Uh, so if you see me antisocial, it's not because I don't like you. It's just, well, I'm trying to be selfish today. So we'll leave it at that. Pray for me that uh, God's uh, strength would be made perfect in my weakness. Tony Romo played 14 years in the NFL as quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys. And over the last few years of his uh, career, he sustained several injuries that forced him into retirement in 2017. And soon after he retired, he was picked up by CBS to be their new live color commentator. And uh, if you remember a couple weeks ago, he called his first Super Bowl game and then Uh, Two weeks before that, he called his first playoff game, the one between the New England Patriots and the uh, Kansas City Chiefs. And if you watch that game, if you care anything about football, perhaps you don't, that's okay, Um, you you remember that he, even before the the teams were on the field uh, taking the snap, he was predicting the call. He was predicting what they were going to run. And more often than not, he was spot on. And it, it, it lit up the entire sports world on fire because they started calling him the greatest sports analyst for football they'd ever seen. In fact, at, at the end of the, the playoff game, he predicted 12 plays, of which 10 of them were perfect. And Twitter went crazy. In fact, we're just going to put up a couple of the tweets that came on. They created a new hashtag called, You're a Wizard, Tony. And here's one, if Tony Romo was with the Avengers, they could have predicted what Thanos would have done and stopped him before the snap. You're a wizard, Tony. Next one. Uh, Tony, where did I leave my phone charger? Only we could get that answer. Wikipedia needs to update that Tony Romo page. He didn't go to Eastern Illinois. He went to Hogwarts. You're a wizard, Tony. Uh, Next one. Confirmed. Just call Tony Romo to see where I'm going to play next year. That's from Bryce Harper, who's looking for a new contract. And then lastly, if at Ro- Tony Romo ever tells you tomorrow is your last day on earth, you better get your affairs in order. You're a wizard, Tony. Tony Romo, for the years that he put in, for the plays that he did, for the hours he spent watching football and film, and all the effort and time in, that he put into playing the game, he sees things we don't see. He sees patterns that we don't recognize. If there's a question about football, Tony's the guy to go, because Tony understands football. Where do we go when we have questions in life? Where do we go for those big questions about who am I and where am I going and what's the purpose and those big picture questions that confound many of us, where do we go when we have questions about life? If only God had written a book. You know? Oh, wait, he did. It's right here, right? He wrote a book. And he breathed it out. And he gave it to us so that all the questions that we have in life about where we're going and what's coming and what we're here for and the purpose and all of that found in the pages of this book that God wrote. Over Hundreds of years, using 40 different authors, he wrote this book, 66 of them to be exact, to communicate his truth and his love for us. When we have football questions, we go to Tony Romo. When we have questions about life, we go to God's Word. That's where we go. And the best person who can put this book into our lives and help us understand it and understand the big picture of what God is trying to do is none other than Jesus Christ. The Bible calls him... The perfecter and author of our faith. 
The Bible says that He is the eternal Word of God, and this book is the playbook of the entire history of the world, and no better person can make this understandable to us than Jesus Christ. We've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount last week. We started that new series, and if you remember, this is the longest sermon that Jesus preached. It covers Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And Jesus, on the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee, if you've been there, you know how beautiful that is. He went up on the hillside and he sat down and his disciples have sat around him. And the crowd who was there would have come and, and sat down around them as well. And they listened to this man named Jesus teach. And he taught with such power and such passion and such authority. They'd never seen the like. It was incredible. It was amazing. And Jesus, for three chapters of our our Bible in the book of Matthew, spends this time to teach us how to live life in the kingdom of God. Because we've we've misread often what God has intended. We've misread the heart of God. And in chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew, Jesus sets the record straight. And last week, we looked at the first 16 chapters Sorry, 16 verses of Matthew chapter 5. Today I get to spend the next four verses with you, verses 17 to 20. And actually the the body of the message starts in verse number 17. And we're going to look at those four, four verses. And as we do, I hope you'll see that Jesus not only shows us how to live, but what to believe. Jesus shows us not only how to live, but what to believe. And I'm going to share with you two principles that I find in these four verses. The first is do not disconnect from the Old Testament. Let me start reading from verse number 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, there are many people today who believe that when you're looking at the Bible, the Old Testament no longer matters, that it's relevant for us today. And so they look at the Bible and and they come up really with a dualistic view of God. They they think that because Jesus has come and because He's died and because he's, He's already paid the penalty and brought up salvation, Old Testament, it's different, it's old, it's gone. And so they have this dualistic view of God where in the Old Testament... You have this vindictive, cruel, judging kind of God who takes out people and nations. And when you come to the New Testament, you have this nice, loving, gracious, wonderful God who paid the penalty for sin. Is that true? Do we have two different kinds of God? No, it's not true. The Bible says there's one God. He is the same in the Old Testament. He is the same in the New Testament. He is the same today. It's the same God. The God we know today and love and study in the New Testament is the God who gave us the Old Testament and is the same. And and Jesus comes and he shows that there's continuity between the old and the new, that there's importance. It's like he's giving the seal of approval to the Old Testament. I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets. There's only one God and the thread of continuity between the old and new is valid and still applies to us today. You know, for the Jews, they would have looked at the entire Old Testament as, as how they would live life. It guided them. It taught them. It, it gave them their identity. And they would usually categorize the Old Testament into three categories, sometimes two, but mostly three. They used to have what's called, they call the first five books of Moses the law. 
Those first five books written by Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, first five books, it taught them who God was, it taught them who they were, it taught them how they were to approach God, how they were supposed to worship God, how they were supposed to live, the moral, judicial, the, the, the ceremonial laws, all of it found in the first five books of Moses, the, the law. The second category they had was called the writings. And the writings contained most of the historical books, like First and Second Samuel, Esther, those were the historical books. And it also contained all of the wisdom literature, Psalms and Pro- uh, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. That's called the writings. And then they had the prophets. The prophets who prophesied about what was coming and prophesied judgment against nations. You know, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, those prophets you know. And then you know the other prophets because that's where the pages of your Bible stick together. Those little minor prophets, right? Those one or two chapter things. Uh, The minor prophets, all called the prophets. The law, the writings, and the prophets. Sometimes they would summarize it as law and prophets. And Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law, or the prophets. What Jesus is saying is, I've, it's all valid. It's all true. It's all still applicable. I didn't come to get rid of it. I came to fulfill it. He's pro-Old Testament. There was a vote. He'd say yes. He's voting for the Old Testament. He's got his seal of approval there. He's wholeheartedly talking about the continuity of the Old and the New Testaments. Let me skip down to verse 18. I'll I'll come back to verse 17 in just a minute. But in verse 18, he says, For truly I say to you, for truly I say to you, in some of your Bibles, it says, truly, truly I say to you. Or if you go way back to the King James, it says, verily, verily I say to you, right? But when he says that, this is the first of nine times that he's going to use this phrase, for I say to you. And so when Jesus says, for I say, it's talking about his right and his authority to tell us what to believe, to tell us what to believe. And then when he says to you, it's an ethical responsibility on our side to believe and to receive and to live out what he tells us to believe. For I say to you, verse 18, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And so for the Jew, when Jesus would have said the iota, It would have referred to the smallest letter in their alphabet, and in their Hebrew alphabet, it would have been the letter Yod, which looks a little like a larger version of our apostrophe. That's the iota, or the Yod. And when Jesus talks about and no dot, or or and the dot, he's talking about the stroke of a pen that a writer would use to, to distinguish one letter from another. So if we were to put it in today's words, we would say something, Jesus would have said something like this, not an I would be left undotted. And no T would remain uncrossed until everything is accomplished. But what's the point? The point isn't about the dot over the I, and it's not about the crossing of the T. What Jesus is saying by these words is, even the smallest, the minutest, the most inconspicuous thing about the Old Testament, it all will find its purpose. It will all work its way to fulfillment and be accomplished. Everything in the pages of the Old Testament is going to be fulfilled. Not an iota, not a dot will pass away until all is accomplished. But then if you go back to verse number 17 for just a moment, Jesus takes this to a place no one has ever taken it to. He says, I have not come to abolish them, that is the law, but to fulfill them. That would have been a very shocking statement because what Jesus is saying is everything that the Old Testament talked about, it's fulfilled in me. 
When the Mosaic law was given, it was pointing to Jesus. The tabernacle was given as a picture for the Old Testament, but it was pointing to Jesus. All the sacrifices and the ceremonies and the feasts that Israel went through, it was pointing to Jesus. Everything that the prophets talked about and prophesied was fulfilled in Jesus. Every shadow and, and type and symbol of the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus says, I fulfill it all. That's a really powerful way to say it. One commentator said it this way. It would have been bold if Jesus said, I have come to adhere perfectly as no man has ever done to the law. Or if Jesus had said, I am come to give the best and final authoritative teaching on the law. Both of those would have been enough for the religious crowd first to scratch their heads and then to rend their garments. But to say what Jesus actually said, we'll get one crucified. Jesus did come and live perfectly the requirements of the law, like no one had ever done before or since. He did fulfill every Old Testament prophet that predicted his coming and his life and his death. But much more than just fulfilling and living out the law in its perfection, Jesus is saying something much more important here, and that is the fact that he is the personification of the Old Testament, that the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in him. Because John says in John chapter 1 and verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In verse 14, he says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the Word of God. What was given in the Old Testament perfectly realized in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Heaven and earth will pass away, but His law will not pass away until all is accomplished. When we come to verse number 19. Jesus continues to say, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same <clears throat> will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The word relax here means to ease, ease back, to, to, to step back away, to basically decide what is important and what is not, to prov provide a value judgment of what things we should be aware of and what we shouldn't. Isn't it interesting that when we read the Old Testament, there are lots of passages in the Old Testament we don't understand. In fact, there are some that are hard to accept. You know, when God's kicking Canaan out, destroying the land of Canaan and all those people, it's really hard to accept that. But Jesus says it's all important. It's all coming true. It's all going to be accomplished. The stuff we like and the stuff we don't like, the things we can believe, the things we can't believe, it's all true. It's all valid. And if you're going to relax any one of them and you're going to teach people to ease back from all of what God has said, Jesus says you'll be least in the kingdom of heaven. Did you know that there was hierarchy in the kingdom of heaven? That's what Jesus said. If you're going to ease back, if you're going to make a value judgment on what is important and what is not, you're going to be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. You're not losing your salvation. But in the hierarchy of the kingdom of heaven, you're at the bottom. But if you do these things and you teach others to do them as well, you'll be called great. Folks, God has given us the scriptures, the old and the new, not for a dichotomy, but for continuity. And as we read and understand the themes that run through the Scriptures, we get a fuller picture of God's plan and purpose, and we understand the New Testament in much greater depth and in much more richness than if we didn't have that Old Testament. 
don't disconnect from or neglect the Old Testament. Jesus' words here don't allow us to mix things up together. There are people who decide, you know, some things are more important than others, and it's very sad because then we put our authority over God's word as we make value judgments, and God says, if you're going to do that, you're going to get all the rotten fruits that come along with doing that. The Barna Group did a study where they surveyed evangelical Christians, Bible-believing Christians, Jesus-professing Christians, people who have accepted Jesus Christ as Lord. They did a, study, a survey on those people, and they asked them if they, if, how many of them would agree to a biblical worldview. I'm going to put that question on the screen. This is the biblical worldview that they asked, that they believe that absolute moral truth exists, the Bible is totally accurate in all of the principles it teaches, Satan is considered to be a real being or force, not merely symbolic. A person cannot earn their way into heaven by trying to be good or do good works. Jesus Christ lived a sinless life on earth, and God is the all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the world who still rules the universe today. If you were called up today by Barna, how would you respond to that? Every question, it's a, it's a, it's a yes to all or a no? You don't have to raise your hand. Just think about every statement on that, on that board. Can you say yes to that? That's what an evangelical Christian should believe. Amen. Can you guess how many people said yes to this survey? Evangelical, Bible-believing, Christ-confessing Christians. 17%. 17% of the people, evangelical Christians, who say they accept Jesus, who accept the Bible, say that these statements, all of them, are true. 17. That means 83% don't accept one or more of these tenets. My friends, I don't know how you did, but if you can't say yes to all of them, you have to ask yourself, then, what am I believing? What am I believing? 83% of the people, and in fact, many people in the world, what they do is they take a spiritual blender and they throw the teachings of Jesus and they throw their own beliefs in the things that make them feel good and they blend together a spiritual protein shake and, and they imbibe it day after day. Jesus doesn't allow that to happen. He doesn't allow you to mix his words with anybody else. He doesn't give you the opportunity. Either Jesus is who he says he is and that what he taught is true and valid or it's not. There's no middle place. It's either Jesus is Lord or he's not. There isn't any place in the middle. And you and I don't get to have value judgments on what Jesus said. Either what he said is true or it's not. We have to decide one or the other. We can't be in the middle. Because if you're in the middle, you may as well be over here where you don't believe. Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets. I came to fulfill it all because it's all fulfilled in me. Don't disconnect from the Old Testament. It's important that when we study it, we do understand the Bible and God's plan better for ourselves. Let's love all of God's Word, the old and the new, to point us to a right belief in Jesus Christ. Let me move on to my second point, and that is in verse number 20. We need to practice an inside-out faith. We need to practice an inside-out faith. Verse number 20 says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never <clears throat> enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, that statement would have totally shocked everyone who was listening. 
Not sure if there were any Pharisees in the crowd, but his disciples would have been shocked. The people listening would have been shocked. The Pharisees would have been absolutely aghast that Jesus made that statement. Your righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. I mean, if he were here today, if Jesus were sitting right here, you know what he'd say to us? He'd say something like this. If you don't make more money than Bill Gates or sell more stuff than Amazon, you don't get to go to heaven. Are you all okay with that? Some of you are not okay. Others of you don't. Oh, okay, sure. Anybody make more money than Bill Gates here? Anybody sell more stuff than Amazon? Guess what? We're not going to heaven. That's depressing. And yet that's what Jesus said. Unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and Pharisees. You know the Pharisees get a bad rap. They're really good people. They were theologically conservative. They loved God. They were devoted to Him. They had a lot in common with Jesus. But the problem is they went a little bit beyond what they should have gone. Not a little bit. They went a lot beyond. They went to an extreme in their devotion to God and became very legalistic. God had given the Israelites 613 laws. 613. (coughs) And that would govern how they lived and how they worshipped and judicially and everything else. All 613 is what God gave them. But they looked at that and said, you know, that's nice, but it's not good enough. It's not specific enough. We need a little bit more. And so they added some oral tradition, and they wrote some other commentaries, and they added to those laws, 613, their own laws. And they demanded that everyone keep them. And so you, you know the very simple example, keep the Sabbath holy, one command. Well, the Pharisees decided that's not good enough because it's not specific. How do you do that? They added 39 more things to that one law so they could keep it. I was in Israel, and maybe if you've been to Israel over a weekend, you know if you ever are in Israel and you're on a Saturday, it's called Shabbat or Sabbath, and things are different. I came down from the hotel, uh, from my room, and to breakfast, the espresso machine's covered up. There's no eggs. There's nothing hot. It's all cold food, or, or, or somebody else baked it and brought it in. Somehow it got there. It, it's very different. And I, I finished my breakfast, and I got back in the elevator. I got in the wrong elevator. And it's the Shabbat elevator. It goes up one floor at a time. My floor was the 24th floor. It took forever. I had all these people around me. It wasn't like I could get out. Thank you. Very sweet of you. Uh, I couldn't get out. It's one floor at a time. You know why? Because going up two floors violates the command, keep the Sabbath holy. Created all these additional rules to help them keep the one God gave them. Isn't that wonderful? Because it's too general. It's not specific enough. Let's make it specific. Thank you, sister, for that. And so, Jesus says to them, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, the disciples have to be thinking, if they're not going to heaven, and I'm not doing even half of what they're doing, what chance do I have? I mean, really, God? My righteousness has to be better than theirs? We don't have a chance. Jesus thought that this was so important that at the end of chapter 5, he says this again slightly differently. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 48, Jesus says, you must be, what's that word? How many of you perfect? I know my wife is perfect, but aside from her, before God. How many of you perfect? Okay, let's read that again. Unless you're perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, 
you don't get to go into the kingdom of God. Oh my goodness. Who has a chance? How in the world are we expected to have a righteousness that meets God's standard? I mean, the righteousness bar of the scribes and Pharisees was really, really high, but Jesus takes it and says, not enough. It's much, much higher because we have a holy and perfect God, and His righteousness and His perfection is pure, and none of us can obtain it. And how in the world are we ever going to do that? How are we going to ever obey what God said? I'm so glad you asked. Because when Jesus uses the word righteousness, he's not talking about what we do. He's talking about having a right relationship with God that starts in our heart. It's a relationship that starts with accepting who he is and having it right on the inside. You see, the Pharisees had a self-righteousness. They were all about getting it right on the outside. When you saw someone and he was dressed a certain way, you knew he was a Pharisee by the way he dressed, by the way he walked, by the way that they dealt with things. You knew right away. It was immediate. They had it all right. They had all the boxes checked. Jesus says, not good enough. Righteousness doesn't start on the outside. Righteousness starts on the inside. It starts with the disposition of your heart. And so Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. And he's basically saying, I'm more interested in your heart. I'm more interested on your inside than on your outside because your beliefs will dictate your behaviors. How is the state of your heart today? The Pharisees looked good on the outside, but they forgot the inside, and Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs. The Pharisees majored on the minors and made the little things the important things. And Jesus says, you got it all wrong. Pharisees looked good. We're more interested in the letter of the law, but God was more interested in the spirit of the law, more interested in our heart. How's your heart today? Is your heart sensitive to God? Is your heart loving God like Jesus loved God? Does your heart love people like Jesus loved people? How's your heart? It's not about coming to church Sunday after Sunday, Thrive class after Thrive class, Sunday school after Sunday school, small group after... That's not what it's about. It starts with your heart. And Jesus is saying you need to have an inside-out kind of faith because it's not important. It's not just important to be called a Christian. You must believe. Now, let me be clear. Works are important because you know that faith without works is, but it starts with faith. If you don't have faith, works are dead as well. The Pharisees had all the works. They had all the external trappings. They looked good. They played the part. They had the great act. But they had no heart. You and I are here today. We need to have, make sure our heart is right. We need to make sure our hearts are sensitive to the leading of the Spirit. We need to make sure that our heart is in obedience and submission to a great and holy God. And that's what Jesus is saying here. We need to have righteousness that exceeds that of the external version of righteousness that the scribes and the, and the, scribes and the Pharisees had. And we need to be aware of the condition of our heart. We need to live right on the inside first so that it's displayed on the outside. Jesus shows us how to live. He tells us what to believe. And if we listen to him, 
we'll live an abundant life that we were meant to live. But it starts with believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. That's where it starts. And if we don't have it right on the inside, our outsides don't matter. But what we do on the outside definitely does display the truth of what's in our heart. So how is our actions today? How is our behavior? Does our behavior in the world today demonstrate the truth that Jesus is truly in our hearts or not? Is Jesus Lord of our life in our heart? And does our behavior correlate with what's going on in our heart? As I close this message, let me just leave you with three things that I hope you'll take away from that, from this message this morning. First is that we must never diminish any part of Scripture. No matter how difficult it is, no matter how confusing it is, we must never diminish any part of Scripture. It's all important. God has breathed it out for teaching, for correction, for rebuke, for training up in righteousness so that the man or woman of God can be found blameless. It's all important. Let's never diminish any part of the Word of God. Let's also, when we read the Scriptures, keep an eye out for Jesus. One eye on the text and one eye on Jesus. Why? Because everything about the Old Testament and about the New Testament is about Jesus. He's there in every page, every story, every person, every event. It's about Jesus. Keep an eye out for Jesus because He is the fulfillment of the Scriptures. And lastly, may I say, allow God's Word to shape our life from the inside out. Allow God's Word to shape our lives from the inside out. Let's allow the, Lord, the, the Scriptures to tell us what to believe rather than what the world is telling us what to believe. The world's got a lot of opinions. It'll add a lot of different things to your idea of how to worship God. But isn't it better to follow what God has to say? If you have a question about football, go to Tony Romo. But if you have a question about life and how to live, follow Jesus and His Word. Because that's settled forever. Amen? If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ... It's not a matter of whether you come to church every day, every weekend or not. It's about whether or not Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior of your life and that He is master of your heart. If you cannot say that, then you do not know Jesus Christ. Today would be a great day to come to know Him by faith. To accept the free gift of salvation that He paid on the cross, shedding His blood and dying for your sins and mine, paying a penalty that you and I could never pay. So that those of us who believe on Him might have His righteousness, might have His perfection. And so when God the Father looks down on us, He no longer sees us and our imperfection and our filthy rags of righteousness. Jesus gives us His perfection. He gives us His righteousness. And when God looks down upon us through the blood of Jesus Christ, He sees a perfect son or daughter of the King. That can be you today if you accept Him by faith. I'll be up at the front here after the service. If you want to know Jesus... I would love to introduce him to you today. But for the rest of us who know Jesus, may we live an inside-out kind of faith that displays for the world to see that Jesus lives in our heart. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this absolutely fantastic morning. Thank you for your word which never fades and never fails. It will all find its completion in you and in us. May our lives continue to proclaim the greatness of an almighty God through our belief in you and everything that you've said. And as that, those beliefs translate into behaviors, may the world continue to see the good works that we have, are doing and bring glory to you. I pray a special blessing upon every head that's bowed here this morning. 
would you send us forth here from, with, from here with your love and with your grace and with the strength of your word that is a light to our path and a lamp to our feet. In Jesus' name we pray.